Coming up today, Matt Burgess investigates a mysterious satellite hack and Matt Reynolds reinvents the humble tree. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business, and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are the Mats, Burgess. Hello. And Reynolds. Hello. And Amit Katwala. Hello. This was the week when the European Union agreed to sweeping new rules to curb the power of big tech. The Digital Markets Act will force the likes of Apple and Google to open up their services and platforms to rival businesses and could end the era of powerful tech gatekeepers. It was also the week when a court case revealed how much UK politicians rely on end-to-end encryption. Documents showed Prime Minister Boris Johnson gets sensitive government material sent to him via WhatsApp on a regular basis. And it was also the week when satellite imagery revealed an Antarctic ice shelf the size of Rome has collapsed within days of record high temperatures. The 1,200 square kilometre Conga ice shelf in East Antarctica broke away on March 15th and it's one of the most significant collapses since the early 2000s with scientists warning that it could be a sign of things to come. And finally, this was the week when playing video games and taking photos on your phone while driving belatedly became illegal in the UK after the government closed a loophole in the law. Previously, being on your phone was only technically illegal if you were using it to communicate, but the law has changed after a man overturned the conviction because he was using his phone to take a video. So, I mean, there is a difference between technically illegal and, and illegal. I imagine if you were playing on a Game Boy while driving around the M25 that that would be illegal because you weren't paying attention to the road, even if the act itself wasn't technically illegal. Yeah, I'm not sure if the law specifically forbids Game Boys. Maybe that's another loophole. <laughs> Maybe, yes. What kind of console can you still get away with? What did we learn this week? Matt Burgess. Uh, so this week I learned that the university's official colour is beige, and it's also called Cosmic Latte. Uh, so in 2002, two Johns Hopkins University astronomers averaged all the colours from the light of 2,000 gal- galaxies and concluded that if the human eye could see this combined, the hue would be a beige colour. Um, and other rejected names were astro- Astronomer Almond Primordial Clam Chowder. Very nice. Two, di- yeah, two different names there, not one very long. Astronomer, Astronomer Ormond Primordial Clam Chowder, um, beige. What are, what, yeah. are we meant to, what are we meant to take from that? Is, is that meant to give us comfort or show the, it, the true banality of life? It is hard to say, but they actually got this wrong originally. So when okay. they first calculated this, they uh, the software that they used had a flaw in it and it came up with like a turquoise colour. Um, but then they reran it sort of like a few months later after the flaw had been found and it came back out as this grey, uh, this beige colour, which I, turquoise would have been a lot more fun. Mm, yeah. I'm going to go to B&Q and get them to mix me up cosmic latte for the, for the walls of the house when we repaint. Yes, you could decorate your house with the true colour of the universe or the blended colour of the universe, primordial clam chowder. Uh, what did you learn this week, Amit? Uh, I learned that multiple sclerosis becomes more common the further away you get from the equator. There's also apparently a seasonal pattern with people born in the Northern Hemisphere winter less likely to be affected than those born in the Northern Hemisphere summer. This is an astonishing fact. What? Why is this a thing? So we're not entirely sure. It seems to be 
there might be a, a genetic component to it. So people of European descent are more likely to get multiple sclerosis, we think. So, and those are the populations that are more likely to live further away from the equator because obviously of Europe and then countries like Australia, South Africa, where there's um, a lot of people of European descent living there. So that could be one reason. Uh, but then there's also seems to be an effect where if you move somewhere before you're the age of 15, your scl- multiple sclerosis risk is linked to the region. But if you move after the age of 15, it's not. So there's clearly something going on with childhood, seasons, the, the latitude, yeah, who knows. Feels like a fact that requires several follow-up facts and questions, but I won't put you on the spot right now because um, I learned something this week. Um, so this week, my children have decided that 5 a.m. is morning time. Um, so I've been spending a lot of time drinking coffee and reading nonsense on the internet, which is what I tend to do when my brain refuses to work, which it doesn't tend to at 5 a.m. And this led me to find out about something called cytogenesis. This is the process by which someone adds something that's totally false to, say, Wikipedia, tends to be Wikipedia, and it's repeated if it's true by so many people in so many different places for such a long time that it basically becomes true. And there's a bunch of examples of this. I think my favourite one that I found so far concerns the weird mustachioed Pringles mascot. Now, does anybody know? You've you've seen him so many times. You probably never thought about this. What's he called? So my gut reaction is he's called Mr. Pringle. Good. Yeah. Any any advances on Mr. Pringle? That's where my brain went to straight away as well. Maybe he's Dr. Pringle. Professor Pringle. Pringle. I like it. He does have a bow tie, right? He is a man of great standing. Matt Burgess? Uh, I've just uh, cheated and Googled it, and it's fantastic. Thanks. I'm not. I'm not going to spoil your reveal, but it's such a good name. Um, yeah, but it's not true. Um, so he's actually called Julius Pringle, um, which is a fantastic name, but not on purpose. So as far as I can tell, this is what happened. His name was invented as a prank by a couple of Wikipedia editors with a pretty good reputation back in 2006. So they basically exploited their reputation as trusted Wikipedia editors to try and slip in something that was patently false, but potentially believable. And they've got away with it. Um, eventually, this prank name became so widely cited that it became true. And Kellogg's, who own Pringles, even put it in an earnings report or an investor letter um, shortly after um, it was um, uh, added to Wikipedia as a prank. And no, no one's ever come out and said it for sure, apart from the people who did it. They've come up with sort of their claimed way that, that they did it. Um, but you can kind of tell that something weird happened because until this edit was made on Wikipedia in 2006, he was called Mr. Pringle. And now... He is Julius Pringle, which is better, but ultimately not true. I have an additional fact just from the Googling that I'm doing right now. Um, apparently in December 2020, I missed this at the time because there's a lot more other things going on in the world. <laughs> but um, Pringles unveiled uh, the full body of uh, Julius, Mr. Pringle, whatever his name is, um, after a campaign by or by uh, TV presenter John Oliver in the US. Um, yeah, they. Can you they, describe the body yeah. to us, Matt? What does it look like? I, I mean, it just looks like a human, a, a human body. Really. <laughs> Proportionally, <laughs> though, like like his head is so wide and sort of big. Is his body equally wide and big? Does he look like the Michelin Man, or does he look like a, does he have like a comically large head for his body? 
it is a comically large head for his body and the mas- and the, the mustache is absolutely huge really um but really it is <laughs> it is just a person in a suit wearing a comically large head <laughs> yeah he kind of looks a bit like a bobblehead i mean yeah, it's it's, it's disappointing um off the back of uh so as you said it was john oliver who did this sort of campaign to um get pringles to reveal the body of mr pringle there's some very good mr pringle fan art that has him um realized as um an octopus a hermit crab um a really really muscly guy um there's some very fun and slightly not suitable for work mr <laughs> pringle julius pringle fan art um which i encourage you all to to go and find and enjoy yes Matt Reynolds. see i just googled this as well and i think that i've found some kind of unofficial version of mr pringle because it's quite <laughs> disturbing he has extremely extremely long arms and the hands seem to be made of like a newspaper article or something and then his body is made out of crisp packets but weirdly not pringle tube crisp packets because they look plastic and Honestly, it's the stuff nightmares are made from. Yeah, I mean, his head is stuff that... His head on anybody is the stuff that that nightmares are made from because he basically looks like an egg with a moustache. So there we go. That's what I learned this week. And hopefully, hopefully, the clock's changing in the UK this weekend means that my kids stop getting up at 5am and I can no longer um, have two or three hours before work to disappear down random internet holes while they watch Mr. Tumble. Anyway, our first story... This week is about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Back in early February, everyone assumed that if Russia did invade, that the -the on-the-ground conflict would be backed up by a massive cyber offensive. In reality, that's not happened. But this week, Matt Burgess, you've been looking at an intriguing attack on a satellite internet company, which suggests that Russia may be more active than people realise. So more than 22,000 miles above Earth, uh, sat in geostationary orbit is a satellite called KASAT. It's one of the key satellites that provides internet connections to Europe. And these connections, uh, as they are with sort of satellite TV, are delivered uh, from the satellite to antennas attached to people's houses and also planes and ships and things like that. And at around 5am on February 24th, when Russian troops invaded Ukraine, this satellite internet connection was disrupted for tens of thousands of people across Europe um, and a satellite uh, a cyber attack uh, did this impact uh, the communicate uh, the satellite's owner Viasat said um, the attack hasn't impacted the satellite itself but stopped modems on the ground similar to your home wi-fi router from connecting to the system uh, around exactly the same time as this was unfolding Russian troops marched into Ukraine and Vict- Victor Zohora a senior official at Ukraine's cybersecurity agency said that this was a really huge loss in communications at the very beginning of the war it kind of went unreported there wasn't too much written about it but more than a month after the attack the disruptions are still pretty widespread and ongoing yeah so as you said there was this sort of flew under the radar a little bit obviously due to other events happening on the ground and sort of the invasions uh, very physical damage but in normal times a hack of this scale would probably have been major news for a few days it pro- uh, there's been suggestion that it would have been the biggest sort of security story in a year uh, in any given year from some experts in the field um 
but really it's been a little bit overlooked. So we did a little bit more digging into this. And more than a month later, the Viasat system, uh, there's still a lot of continuing problems. So thousands of connections across Europe are still disrupted. People in France, Germany, the UK, Poland, and even in some reports as far away as Morocco are suffering from disruptions. Um, and many of the modems that were impacted by this cyber attack are having to be replaced. The systems were essentially bricked and couldn't be corrected. Um, and satellite internet service providers say they've been uh, rendered useless, uh, although these modems are being repaired in Viasat's warehouses, or in some cases they can push over the air updates remotely to these devices. But generally, there has been a huge amount of disruption caused to people that are relying on these satellite satellite internet connection services. And quite often, people that are using this type of internet connection don't have other ways to connect to the internet. They may be in areas where there's not much fixed broadband coming through cables. Um, so it, for a lot of people that are using this, it is very much a crucial uh, and the only way of getting online. So how might this attack have been carried out? Is this a case of hacking the satellite although you said that wasn't affected or have the people that done this gone after the base stations back on earth or each individual router or the software on those routers in people's homes what's going on here so at this stage, there is still quite a lot we don't actually know about the attack but there is uh almost by the day, more and more little drips of information that are coming out. Um, so when I started reporting this, experts told me that the most common way that they would think of somebody disrupting satellite internet connection would be to interfere with the radio signals that are sent between the satellite and the ground. This is something... Uh, done in a process called jamming um, and Elon Musk has claimed that Starlink satellite systems that he sent to Ukraine to help get people online have faced jamming attacks but in this case with Viasat this doesn't necessarily seem to be uh, what has happened uh, the attack against the network was a deliberate isolated and external cyber event the company has said uh, and they say the attack only impacted fixed broadband customers it didn't cause disruption to airlines or Viasat's US government clients and it also says that no customer data was impacted earlier this week uh, on tuesday viasat chairman mark dankberg told a satellite conference that he was speaking at that the company purchased the ksat system in europe last year and it's still through the process of transitioning um, its services from the company it purchased it from to itself uh, and the actual intrusion it says happened uh, related to that sort of third party customer um, and Viasat said that the cyber attack was the result of a misconfiguration in a management section of its network it's declined to give any more details at this stage but one theory is that it could have been a malicious firmware update that was sent out to modems and stopped them working so essentially somebody uh, it's theorized could have got access to this management system and then being able to push out something that stopped routers from working um, and these modems that people have in their houses they communicate with other ground stations that are connected to the internet via cables um, to receive configuration information so uh, information about where the satellite what antenna should be pointed what the sort of weather conditions are and sort of various different pieces of information so disrupting that process and uh, disrupting those uh, modems that people have seems to be uh, what has gone on here and it looks like uh, from what we can tell at this stage that yeah that disruption has caused them to stop working and, and needed to be replaced and there's maybe a bit of a clue in what you said a couple of minutes ago that Viasat saying that US government clients weren't disrupted and also said that this attack only affected customers in 
Europe. And there's also the fact that this attack coincided almost to the minute with Russian troops rolling across the border into Ukraine. Attribution is really, really difficult, but there is a lot of quite compelling evidence here, particularly when you understand what this might have been going after. So why might Russia or someone else, because we don't know for sure that it was Russia, target what seems like a fairly obscure satellite internet service that looks after internet connections for people in remote and rural areas of Europe, rather than going after, say, a a major internet service provider to knock out connections in an entire city? What's the real target here? So the Ukrainian government has remained relatively tight-lipped about this attack. This is something that obviously makes sense. It wouldn't want to be talking about uh, something that disrupted its systems when there are many other things that are going on and sort of its efforts are focused on um, countering the invasion. Um, However, Ukraine has the world's most transparent system for tracking government spending. Um, This is a system called ProZorro. And multiple government contracts show that the security agency there and the police have purchased satellite information technology to uh, internet connection technology to communicate um so for instance back in 2012 during the uh, ukraine's elections more than 12,000 satellite internet connection points were used to monitor voting uh, official documents show in this case so it looks like there could have been the ambition to disrupt military and defense communications as soon as the russian troops started moving but At this stage, we don't necessarily know for sure it was Russia. We do know that Russia has a long history of hacking and is one of the most sophisticated countries in this space. Um, No government or Viasat uh, itself has actually officially attributed the attack. But since I actually made my podcast notes and since we talked about this yesterday, overnight, there has been uh, a report from the Washington Post saying that the US... uh, Uh, believes or various US officials believe that Russia is behind this attack and in particular Russia's military unit the GRU which is its intelligence division and has been linked to lots of other hacking in the past Um, so there is now this um, line that actually um, Russia was behind this attack it hasn't been officially confirmed but the sources the Washington Post spoke to um, had had um, confirmed this sort of Uh, anonymously to them because they weren't authorised to talk on the record. So it does seem, um, as this is emerging, that Russia may be eyeing this. And as you sort of say earlier, James, there are a lot of indications, given the timing, the targets that were disrupted, that it could actually have been a Russian attack. What's interesting about this story, particularly as we get closer potentially to attribution, is it gives us the first clear picture of Russia's cyber offensive against Ukraine, which, as we said right at the top, was assumed, it was assumed before the invasion that if an invasion did happen, it would be huge. In reality, either it's not been successful and there have been reports of intelligence sharing um, between Ukraine and um, the US and and Europe to rebuff Russian attacks, um, which it seems as Russia invaded Ukraine, it did try to knock out a lot of Ukrainian systems and failed. But here it succeeded. Um, but broadly, something that has been sort of suggested by, by experts in the space is that Russia may not have used cyber attacks against Ukraine. And I think that's a bit up for debate um, based on recent news because of a risk of spillover. And that's perhaps best demonstrated by the huge impact of the NotPetya worm, which was targeted at Ukraine 
a few years ago, but ended up causing chaos around the world, right? It knocked out shipping lines, the NHS systems in, in the UK. It had a huge, huge impact. And maybe on a smaller scale, that's exactly what's happened here, right? They wanted to knock out Ukrainian military communications infrastructure that was using the satellite network, but they inadvertently bricked routers for thousands of satellite internet customers across an entire continent, which Russia might not want to do, either because it makes it look bad or because it has some sort of knock-on effect that it, that it isn't able to control. Yeah, the, the common example, as you say here, when we're talking about incidents of spillover, which is an attack that uh, essentially goes beyond its original target is the NotPetya attack, which did more than sort of 10 million, 10 billion, sorry, uh, of damage around the world, which spread through hundreds of businesses and uh, yeah, crippled shipping and supply chains. This obviously isn't the same scale, but it seems unlikely that the targets were uh, meant to be uh, as widely sort of hit as they were. So for example, uh, more than 5,800 wind turbines belonging to a German energy company were knocked offline when this attack happened. The disruption didn't stop the turbines from spinning or impacted the grid, but it meant that they couldn't be remotely reset. And as I said, that this attack has impacted uh, customers across the whole of Europe rather than just Ukraine. Um, and the um, the Western officials who we have spoken to around this said that it looks likely to have been a spillover incident and essentially that a lot of these uh, wind turbines are still disconnected. There's still more than half of them that aren't online in the same way as they should be. Um, and it really does seem to be a case of actually there may have been a specific target for this, but in reality, the attackers spilled way beyond Ukraine's borders. And what we're seeing on the ground in Ukraine right now, according to all of the defence and intelligence reports, is that Russia's advances are stalling. Um, and recently, US President Joe Biden has warned that Russia's cyber offences may start to ramp up as a result. And we've also seen really, really concerning reports about the potential use for chemical, biological and targeted nuclear weapons as Russia gets, for want of a better word, frustrated that it's not able to make the progress that it would like. But what we still lack with regards cyber are specific details of what Russia might be planning and what tools it has at its disposal. Yeah, so as you say, there has been, um, in, a, in a lot of cases, there has been um, not any huge and obvious impact yet. And as we talked about when we discussed the IT army uh, a few weeks ago that Ukraine has started, these things take time to unravel and to see the impact. But over time, we are starting to see more of uh, suggestions around what Russia has been doing in this space. So in recent days, there's been more reports of uh, Russian uh, malware, uh, wiper malware, sorry, that has been found that essentially will, uh, could knock out uh, and delete people's files from systems and that being targeted at Ukraine. But earlier this week, Joe Biden warned about new intelligence on Russian cyber attacks against the US. Nothing has happened yet. It's obviously important to stress. But the fact that Biden was saying this is incredibly important because it's coming from the highest level. It's coming from the top. Um, the US and allies have been telling businesses for quite a while to shore up their defences for months in case of any sort of potential spillover attacks or things. But 
um, in this instance. Um, Biden's warning came alongside uh, the FBI saying that at least five US energy companies and 18 other spanning critical infrastructure sectors have experienced abnormal scanning from Russian linked IP addresses. And this activity, the FBI said, likely indicates early stages of reconnaissance, scanning networks for vulnerabilities for use in potential future future intrusions. This doesn't necessarily mean that there is going to be any attacks on critical infrastructure or anything like this. Um, And in many ways, I think the US saying this, or at least acknowledging uh, that they're seeing this activity is a bit of a warning sign uh, to to show Russian uh, actors that they actually are very clear and knowing what they're doing. And it's it's essentially saying, we can see you. This is all really, really intriguing because it was assumed as we said right at the top and have mentioned a couple of times throughout this was meant to be maybe the first big cyber war where it wouldn't be tanks and bombs and bullets and trenches what we've actually seen is the use of medieval almost siege warfare with really brutal results so why did people get it so wrong on the cyber front. Why isn't this a quote-unquote cyber war? Yeah, that is a very big question. There's been a lot of uh, discussion and debate around this, but I think that in if you look at least in sort of like popular press for for one instance that the the idea and the the sort of like discussion of cyber war it sounds like something that's very futuristic and very uh, much like something that should be obvious and should be done at the push of a button. But in reality, these things are a lot more complex and detailed than that. So a minute ago, I was talking about sort of like the the reconnaissance and the scanning of networks for vulnerabilities. Um, These things take time. They're they're deeply complex. You don't necessarily know the result that you're going to get if you find a vulnerability and then something could spread from one network to another. As with the NotPetya worm, um, it was very unlikely that that was uh, meant to go all around the world and impact so many victims as it did. But I think there is just as well sort of like a little bit of a misunderstanding around uh, cyber attacks in general and what the what they really entail and sort of the, the damage that they can do. It's not easy to knock out systems, uh, particularly with critical infrastructure. Um, it's hard to get to parts of the network where you can cause physical damage or take massive systems offline. Um, and Kira Martin, who used to run the UK's uh, cyber defense unit, the National Cyber Security Re- Center, recently said, that the idea that war was moving online primarily, which has been put around for the last quarter of a century, um, in 2022 at this moment, at the very least, is not accurate, Kieran said. And to to quote them exactly, uh, he said, those who would be pushing that sort of line, I think have been pushing a very different version of cyber that doesn't exist. Which is counterintuitive, but as we're seeing from events on the ground accurate and it will be interesting to see how long that line holds as this war continues and as Russia potentially continues to be frustrated by Ukraine's remarkable resistance. Fascinating story as always and we've published a whole lot more on the situation in Ukraine on Wired recently. Head to wired.com for all of our coverage. And if you want to get in touch with us about this story or anything else that we talked about on the podcast this week, the email address, as always, is podcast at wired.co.uk. 
For our second story this week, Matt Reynolds has been exploring a bold new plan to tackle climate change using genetically modified trees. Matt? That's right. I I think we'll all be pretty familiar with tree planting schemes. This is one of the few climate solutions that pretty much everyone can agree with, right? There's governments that are saying, let's plant millions of trees in the next year. And we're putting that, you know, they're putting those in their election pledges. There's billionaires that are saying, let's fund these tree planting schemes. And there's, you know, startups and all kinds of companies that are saying, look, the one thing we need to do is put more trees into the ground. And, you know, the the reason that is, is because trees draw down carbon from the atmosphere as they grow and they turn some of that into biomass, which is just, you know, the term that refers to trunks and roots and basically any part of the of the plant or in this case, the tree that you can touch. And hopefully, eventually, they also help sequester this carbon under the ground in the soil. So this is all good and there are lots of problems with tree planting schemes but the basic science of it is pretty simple right when tree grows it takes some of that carbon out of the atmosphere and some of it it locks up you know in its own body essentially in its trunk and things like that but there's a pretty fundamental limiting factor when it comes to drawing down carbon using trees and it's really simple it's how fast and how big trees grow and what i've been doing this week is speaking with some scientists who think that the answer to you know get more out of tree planting schemes is basically to use genetic engineering to build faster growing bigger trees that can draw down more carbon more quickly classic scientists with their sort of you know thinking they can save everything it's quite an interesting case of that isn't it so the way they want to do this is by improving one of the core processes of plant life say photosynthesis so they essentially want to hack this process that's been the basic machinery of life on earth for eons right yeah exactly easy there's a thing that evolution took hundreds of millions of years to perfect and now scientists are going to go in and tweak it the the interesting thing here is that photosynthesis is remarkable but you know, not to be mean to all the plants out there, but it's also kind of rubbish. It doesn't really work in the way that it should do. And I'll just kind of explain some of the kind of basics of, of why this is. So, you know, how photosynthesis works really on a real basic level is plants take carbon dioxide and sunlight and they turn them into sugars that they use to grow. And this is kind of miraculous really it's like a a kind of alchemy right they take these sunlight which is something that you know we can't use as as humans or animals can't use but they take these materials and they turn it into biomass but there's this really big problem and that's that photosynthesis is woefully inefficient so only a tiny fraction of the energy in sunlight that falls on leaves actually gets turned into living material so it's about 4.6 percent of all that energy in sunlight that you know say drops on a specific leaf only 4.6 percent of that energy actually gets turned into biomass and of course scientists have known this for a really long time and they say well if we can up that 4.6 percent figure to i don't know five percent or six percent or seven percent we could get way more bang for our buck we could get really efficient fast growing trees and fast growing plants and for a long time this has been a you know a big opportunity that loads and loads of scientists have spoken or, or you know been focusing on and i spoke to one of them amanda kavanagh who works in university of essex and she's been trying to find ways to cut out some of this inefficiency in photosynthesis and get plants to put that extra energy into growth instead and in 2019 she had some really interesting results that basically you know what she did is she put a couple of new genes into tobacco plants and tobacco plants are kind of the lab rats of the plant world so you get lots of testing done in tobacco plants And they found that by inserting these genes from an algae and a pumpkin plant, 
they could get plants to recycle a waste product of photosynthesis and recycle it back into a molecule that the plant could use to grow. So the plant was basically directing more of its energy into its growth and less of its energy into dealing with these waste materials. And once they planted these tobacco plants in the ground, Kavanagh's uh, you know, plants were about 40% more productive than their non-edited equivalent. So we know that hacking photosynthesis, if you like, does work in certain plants. And obviously, there's not just research, right? There's a bunch of startups trying to do this as well. So including Living Carbon, which, uh, as the person you spoke to from Living Carbon said, has the slightly alarming aim of creating the Tesla of trees. Yeah, exactly. Which is, it's a very startup-y way of putting it. But they're basically saying, look, if we say a tree planting scheme, you plant a normal tree and it soaks up one unit of carbon. Well, if we can plant a better tree that soaks up 1.5 units of carbon over the same amount of time, you know, the same, I don't know, five years a plant takes to mature or something like that. Well, that's better, right? We get way more bang for our buck for every square acre of land that you're putting towards these trees. And essentially what living carbon is doing is taking almost exactly the same process and exactly the same uh, genetic engineering approach that Kavanaugh was doing with her tobacco plants, but they're doing this with a, a certain type of poplar tree. And the reason I'm talking about this now is because these scientists at living carbon have, have published you know, their, their first glimpse, you know, their first tree of, uh, that has this edit and has this kind of difference in how it grows. And I have to add some kind of caveats here because this is a preprint, which means that it's a scientific paper that hasn't been reviewed by other scientists. So, you know, we're not entirely certain. It hasn't gone through the same process that, say, a journal article might go through. But the results are pretty exciting. They found that they can make their edited poplar trees grow 53% more quickly than their non-edited equivalents. And th there are some more caveats here, right? So both sets of trees were grown under controlled conditions. Uh, both sets are these trees that were edited and also some control trees so to see if the edit was actually you know making sense but the company really hopes that what this will do is supercharge tree planting schemes and basically help people draw down atmospheric carbon more quickly so i guess there are a bunch of issues with this that firstly that growing more quickly doesn't necessarily equate to you know that's a kind of fairly imprecise measure for what we're actually trying to achieve which is pulling more carbon out of the atmosphere we also don't know how the changes that they've made to these trees to make them grow more quickly are going to affect them in the long term. And when you're talking about storing carbon for a long, long time, that's what really sort of matters. If your tree grows really, really quickly, but then dies and rots and releases all that carbon back into the atmosphere in a much shorter time frame, it's sort of pointless. So, you know, what are some of the issues with this and how are they tackling those? Yeah, exactly. And that's why I kind of, you know, I really front loaded with those caveats, because this is 21 weeks of experiment around, around five months. And there's lots of things that maybe you see over those 21 weeks that you might not see if these plants were grown to full maturity you know, in the wild. You know, poplar trees can live for 50 years. So there's a lot of life, uh, a lot of things that could happen around that over that time period you know things like well maybe these trunks are too brittle so what if they um trees get to 10 years old and then they collapse and if they decompose and then microbes burp all that carbon back up into the atmosphere well that's not much good you're just kind of you've just kind of captured that carbon for a short amount of time before releasing it again we also need to know where these extra sugars are transported in the plants are there plants taking it and putting it in useful areas in trunks and and in roots and places that are stored or actually does the plant 
plant not know what to do with all this mass? Does that mass somehow end up messing up the plant? There's also all these issues around the fact that when poplars are really young, when they're seedlings, they don't really have a problem accessing sunlight, right? Because they're small, no one else is, is shading them out, so they've got lots and lots of um, sunlight hitting their leaves. But when these plants are uh, older, lots of those leaves are in shade, either because of other trees or because of you know, the, the leaves on the plant itself. So how do these plants react when they're actually growing in a much more shaded environment, which is perhaps a little bit more realistic? It's quite unlikely these plants will be being grown in some kind of, well, certainly not a lab condition. And all these questions are, are kind of quite fundamental to this carbon sequestration problem, right? How much carbon are we drawing down and how much carbon are we actually um, you know, taking away over a, over a significant amount of time? And the problem is, is that we don't really know the, the answers to those questions until these trees have been growing for certainly many more years, potentially decades. So we can't say for sure, well, this is a better tree, we should switch all of our tree planting over to these poplars, because we just don't exactly know how they'd work at scale and over long periods of time. The question that I had when I was reading your story was, like you mentioned how photosynthesis is really inefficient, but plants have had you know hundreds of millions of years to evolve, as you said. If there was a way for plants to make photosynthesis so much more efficient without any drawbacks, like surely it would have already evolved by now naturally, right? Exactly. And this is a starting point that lots and lots of scientists reach for, right? If there's a new disease and it kills those trees, they say, well, somewhere in nature, they must have evolved uh, resistance to this disease already. And that's almost always true. And it turns out in photosynthesis, it's true as well. So there are actually two types of photosynthesis. One is called C3 and one is called C4. Now, almost all of the plants, and certainly most of the plants that we kind of use in everyday life, use C3 photosynthesis. And that basically refers to this kind of free carbon molecule they make during the process of photosynthesis. Now, C4 plants evolved a tweak that means they actually create an intermediate four carbon compound during photosynthesis. And they also deal with waste products in a slightly different way. This is all a little bit complicated, but it essentially means that C4 plants are much, much more efficient at growing than C3 plants. But there's a problem, like I mentioned, we don't really have many C4 plants. There's a notable exception. Um, you know, corn is a C4 plant, so it grows very, very well. If researchers could recreate this functioning in other crops like wheat or rice or pretty much any of these big crops that we, we grow around the world, soybeans, things like that, they could supercharge productivity. And that's why there's been a whole bunch of work that's been done on recreating C4 photosynthesis in C3 plants. In fact, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has this whole big series of work called Realising Increased Photosynthetic Efficiency. It's all trying to answer this question, how can we get plants to photosynthesise more efficiently? And until now, that problem or that work is almost focused exclusively on crop plants because it makes a lot of sense, right? If you want to feed, you know, whatever it is going to be, 9.7 billion people by 2050, a really good way to do that is just to get more out of all of your plants that you already have in the ground. So up until now, almost all of that research is focused on crops and not on trees. But this work is kind of interesting because the first time it says, oh, that thing you've been looking at in soybean or in wheat or in rice, actually, that could be quite important for the climate crisis too. So one thing that, that scientists do when they want uh, a particular plant to have a particular set of traits is that they will try and, you know, crossbreed it or spice it together. So there's no way of kind of getting C3 plants to use this C4 photosynthesis that you talked about. So what 
why is that a and also what what is living carbon trying to do then how does its genetic tweak actually impact photosynthesis so the reason why it's really difficult to replicate C4 photosynthesis is that there are a few different things going on in that process. And actually, when I say a few different things, I mean like loads and loads of different things that are controlled by many different enzymes. And there's a lot of quite complicated pathways going on. And it's really difficult for scientists to even make one change in a plant, right? To say, let's insert this one gene that expresses this one enzyme, let alone all these complicated pathways that interact with each other. But what this work does do is try and imitate one aspect of what C4 plants do. And it's this, um, it's this thing or this pathway called photorespiration. So basically, when plants photosynthesize, occasionally the enzymes within them accidentally grab a oxygen molecule instead of a carbon molecule. Remember, plants, what they really want to do is grab carbon out of the sky and turn that into sugar and turn that into something they can eat. Occasionally, the plant accidentally grabs an oxygen molecule and is like, oh no, what have I done? What can I do with this? And, and what these plants do is this process called photorespiration. So they, they basically turn it into this toxic byproduct called phosphoglycolate. And then the plant has to break down this this. Uh, byproduct and that's annoying because it wastes energy because they have to shuttle this product out of the chloroplast and then back into the chloroplast and they have to break it down and they have to take those constituent plants those constituent parts to different places so it wastes like a whole bunch of energy just by doing all this shuttling around with this waste product that you never wanted in the first place and you only had because of an accident what living carbons edited trees and, and Kavanagh's tobacco plants do is they basically help the plant use less energy when they're breaking down this phosphoglycolate. So instead of transforming it out of the chloroplast, they kind of keep it neater. They keep it a place where the plant can access it a bit more readily. And they also break it down into a form that it can then use and turn into sugar. So it's a little bit like I don't know, instead of being like, oh, we have to wee out all this liquid and it's kind of a waste. What if we could use some of that to grow a bit more efficiently? Or what if our kidneys were better at getting more out of the, um, you know, the food that we already take in? That's a bit of a gross example, I guess, to think about. But it's, it's, it basically, it's about producing less waste and being more useful with the waste that you do have. Yeah, it was reminding me of like, as you were talking, I was thinking about lactic acid and the way our bodies treat lactic acid and things like that, right? It's that kind of analogy. So now they've got these trees, they've obviously done this pilot project, they've got this paper that's in preprint. What is the kind of long-term plan? What's the business model here for these genetically modified poplar trees? Soon, they're going to put these trees to the test in the real world. Obviously, the problem, as I mentioned before, is these trees are grown in lab condition. It doesn't tell us a whole bunch of how they'll perform when they actually come to field trials. So Living Carbon has already planted 468 of these photosynthesis-enhanced trees, that's what they call them. They've planted them in central Oregon, which is part of a field trial it's running with Oregon State University. And the company obviously eventually wants to sell these to people or you know, grow these on private land so they can actually um, you know, start drawing down ca carbon at scale. And to do that, it secured agreements to plant these poplars which are actually created with a slightly different technique. It's to do with how they introduce the genes, but it's essentially the same technology. So they've got agreements to grow these poplars on around 3,500 acres of private land in the USA. And they say that the first plantings are scheduled to start in late 2020 and early 2023. Now, this might be a little bit ambitious because there are 
always big problems when it comes to introducing these kind of plants into the wild, not least in terms of regulation and in terms of public acceptance. So this is something that's called transgenesis. So these plants or these trees contain genes from other organisms, in this case, a pumpkin plant and, and an algae. And that means it has certain kind of, A, it has certain public connotations, but B, it sometimes falls under certain regulatory processes that can slow it down. There's a transgenic chestnut tree that has been produced in the US years ago uh, and that is resistant against this chestnut blight, which is a really bad disease, which has actually you know, completely knocked out a whole bunch of chestnut trees um, in America. And that has been tied up in approval for a really long time. So, you know, th there's some signs it's quite a difficult process. There's actually only two um, genetically modified trees that are approved in the US and there's only five worldwide. So there aren't a whole bunch of examples that you can point to and say this has been used and this has been used now living carbon says that it doesn't need to be regulated in the same way because it has this kind of um non-regulation approval from the usda sometimes these things don't exactly turn out like that and they take like quite a lot longer to actually you know bring to uh, the real world than than startups might hope one thing i guess the company does have going for it is that it's not targeting say um, you know, reforestation efforts on public land, what it wants to do is target private land landowners that own quite a lot of land, potentially low-value land. So things like, well, low-value in terms of tree planting, at least. So things like mines or kind of underproductive land. And what they want to do is essentially, they're going to say to these farmers or, you know, these landowners, if you lease me whatever it is, 20 acres of your land, we're going to grow our special trees. And what we're going to do is you can sell carbon credits because they're capturing carbon to companies that want to buy carbon credits to reduce their carbon footprint. And what they're going to say that what they'll say to these landowners is we'll give you a share of that carbon credit that we've sold as a thank you for allowing us to grow this tree on your land. So it's all about, you know, the, the idea essentially is to make money by selling carbon credits against these trees. And then also, it's quite likely that after 30 or 40 years, these trees will be chopped down and used for furniture or used for timber. And then the whole kind of process starts again. It seems like quite a low margin kind of business model, if you know what I mean. And I guess my question is that like, given the urgency of this problem, if I've got, if I'm a landowner, landowner sitting on a bunch of underused land, would it not be better for me to just plant normal trees on this land today rather than maybe waiting for this like gene that is a tree that could take a decade to come to market like that 10-year gap that we're waiting for this slightly more efficient tree to be developed surely you're just gonna you know you're gonna pull more carbon out of the air just by planting something that we've got available now today right than by waiting for 10 years or however long it's gonna take yeah and i, I put these questions both to living carbon and to the scientists i spoke to and i think essentially their response was you know, that, that's a fair comment. That might be right. It might be a while before we really know how effective these trees are and before people start to take them up at a, a wider scale. But the scientists I've spoken to said, why not do both? You know, why not try and make these better trees and use those where we can while we're trying to do other things? So maybe we can try and use traditional breeding to breed better trees because some people are resistant to the idea of using transgenic trees. And at the same time, why not be planting trees right now anyway. I think what is certainly true is that it's not like 
tree planting is going to stop in five years, right? We're, you know, there's, there's schemes to plant a trillion trees. We know that we, we need to protect and also grow billions and billions of trees over the next few decades. So there are going to be lots and lots of opportunities to do this in lots and lots of different parts of the world. So it probably makes sense that we're trying a few different approaches. But, I, you know, I certainly don't think it's true that, you know, we've got to wait for this genetically modified tree and that's what's going to save us. Not least because there are lots of other problems. We know from tree planting schemes that sometimes the saplings die because people don't maintain them. Sometimes they're grown in the wrong area. Sometimes people don't have enough access to seeds. So there's lots and lots of problems, even once you've grown the trees, that you might run into. But what I do think is interesting about this work is that it basically looks at tree planting and says, yeah, it's great for lots of reasons, but we need to make it more efficient. We need to give nature a helping hand by, you know, genetic intervention to try and really boost it. And I guess that's quite an interesting way of thinking about nature and thinking about carbon capture, because you could follow this down a kind of slightly dark, slightly dystopian kind of logical framework and say, well, photosynthesis is only 4.6% efficient at turning sunlight into energy. Why not take something that's more efficient, like solar panels, and get them to um, power really, really efficient direct carbon air capture? So these machines that take carbon out of the air and store it in some kind of solid form. Why don't we just chop down trees and have much more efficient um, carbon capture machines that are powered in some different way instead. Now, I don't really think we're there, right? I don't actually think that's true. But it is conceivable that you might get to a point where direct air capture could be competing with trees. I think it leads into a kind of interesting space, whereas if you have to make the decision, do I plant this transgenic tree because I get 1.5 units per acre versus this natural tree, quote unquote natural tree, because I get one unit per acre, how do I make that decision? And these are difficult questions to answer. And they're also questions that we haven't really had to contend with, because we haven't really had this technology. So it brings all these kind of interesting questions about which solutions you go for and why you prioritise certain solutions. It's a very big, complicated issue. So big and so complicated that Matt hasn't even finished writing the story yet. Um, but he kindly brought it onto the podcast as a special preview for all of you. If you want to find out more, and there is undoubtedly more to find out, you can read the full story on Wired.com on Monday at midday UK time. Set an alarm so you can be on it the second it's published. That's it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening. As always, podcast at Wired uk if you want to get in touch with the show we do love to hear from you and we'll be back again same time next week have a good one take care bye 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 bye